You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit tvcresources.net. Good morning, church. My name is Sam Wolf. Uh, I serve on our staff as the director of finance. This morning, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sam. Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and land in that text because there's a lot there. Now, I got past the scary passage last week, but this is still pretty complex, right? Um, I I wish I had a little bit more time. Uh, Sam, uh, who who just read that to you, uh, has a a, a beautiful background, but part of that background included him driving past uh, our church and praying against it. Uh, And so literally, if you want to know why he would do that and the irony of him reading this passage on this day, you can ask him. Uh, But that brother used to drive past our church and say, God, would you hinder uh, their influence will you hinder uh, their reach into this community? And then uh, the Lord kind of grabbed hold of his heart and now he's on staff. And so I kind of just giggle a little bit about uh, how the Lord works and, and that even when uh, we, we might be aggressively against, the Lord might do a work that kind of creates clarity. Uh, and so I just always love when the Lord flexes like that. Uh, we have a, a lot to do, but I always want to probably uh, once or twice a year, just pause for a second and, and remind you what we're trying to do here. Uh, right? Like we, here we are, we've gathered. It's kind of a weird deal. We gathered, we just sang. That doesn't really happen a lot uh, in other places. And so we've come. And so what are we actually up to? Uh, so what I want to continually lay in front of you uh, is that the reason we preach the way we preach, teach the way we teach, and press the way we press uh, is because what, what I am hungry for and the, what I want to spend my life on uh, is you zealously in love with the God of the Bible and passionately living it out on the outsides of these walls. So so what I've tried to say to you over and over again is I want you to be a problem for the enemy. I am not spending my life so that you could be good, moral people. How boring is that? No, no, no. I, I want you to be a problem. Uh, like the, the devil and, and the enemy goes, oh, crud, one of them in this neighborhood. Oh, dang, one of them at this workplace. Oh, crud, they just joined this gym. That means our stronghold, our stranglehold is going 
to lose its grip because they pray, they fast, they hustle, and they love Jesus. And so that, that's how I'm trying to spend my life. So you're never going to find me going, hey, morally do more of this, morally do more of that. I want you to be so captivated by Jesus and his glory that it forms and shapes you to look more like him over time. And, and that's what I'm trying to do in this room. I'm trying to fill you with courage. I'm trying to provoke you to action. I'm trying to remind you that behind everything is Jesus ruling and reigning, that you and I are not only secure, but called into the great drama of the universe, pushing back darkness and establishing light. You're not spectators. That's not what this is. And if all you do is like how I talk and like our music, we have failed you. Christianity is not what happens in these walls. It's what happens outside these walls. We come in here and we're just reminded of what we're caught up in. We're re-gospeled and reminded of his goodness and grace. So we preach hard and we say difficult things and we call you to holiness, and we call you to action, uh, because what a waste of your beautiful life for you to be a spectator that's constantly worried about moral betterment rather than, than really um, having yourself let loose on the kingdom of darkness. There's this great uh, passage, again, I, I do this twice a year, I'm going to take a little time to do it, where um, the, the seven sons of Sceva are casting out uh, demons, and, and they're the sons of a Jewish itinerant exorcist, whatever that is, I guess it's what that is, uh, and they, they cast out these demons, or they try to cast out these demons, and the demon speaks, there, a lot of demons speak out to the seven sons of Sceva, and they say, we know Jesus, and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? Now, the thing that always stood out to me about that story in Acts 17, 18, it's somewhere in there, is that they had heard of Paul. I just love that. Like Paul was so wreaking havoc on darkness that the demons were like, oh yeah, we heard of that guy. And listen, I, I know you probably don't even see yourself this way. I, that's what I want for you. Uh, I want them to go, oh dang, I heard of them. I don't want it to ever be said of any of you, but who are they? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of Jesus. I heard of that, but, but who's that? No, no, I want you to be a problem. And so we're, we're preaching, we're pushing, and we're trying to organize so that you might be stirred up, so that you might be equipped, and so that you might be released on this whole area of North Texas to do gospel goodness, right? That, that's what's in our hearts. And so that's going to happen in this room every week. You're not going to get a lot of come here and let me hug you, although I do want to lay grace on you over and over and over again. I want to remind you of the finished work of Jesus Christ in a way that helps you rest in him. But then I want to set some tables up for your heart to be encouraged in the Lord. Um, and so um, like one of the things we've done to try to stir up that if you've ever, uh, if you've ever been curious when you've heard me say things like there's a revival going on in the Middle East right now that might be one of the greatest in human history. If you ever heard me talk about how God's moving around the world and you're like, dang, where's he getting that? Where's he hearing that? Well, what we did is we just kind of brought our sources to you. Uh, so this Friday night, 6.30 to 8.30, Steve Robinson's going to come. He, he's the president of a missions agency that focuses on the unreached. Now look at me, this is crazy. He grew up in Papua New Guinea, him and his family, among a tribal group of cannibals. Now, I don't know what you got in your background. I don't know what you got. I don't know what your experiences are as a child. But the Holy Spirit fell on that tribe in such a way that even to this day, the majority of them now worship Jesus as Lord. 
So while you and I are sitting, and I, again, I don't know what your background is. Maybe you've been coming today, I'm like, I'm not sure that, that Jesus can forgive me. I'm not sure. Have you eaten anyone? Like, have you murdered them and butchered them and cooked them and eaten them? So, like, that, that happened in that tribe. You know, kind of little T trauma you're dealing with, but to come to Christ and go, murdered a guy once and ate him. Like, that, that's up there. And yet we've got this whole tribe of people worshiping King Jesus and the God of the Bible because the gospel went out and the gates of hell will not prevail and Jesus will build his church. So I want to invite you, 6.38.30, it's like 10 bucks, $30 for a whole family. Bring your kids. I don't think he's got pictures of the cannibalism. Uh, I just think he's going to talk about how God's and the gospel's breaking loose all over the world. Uh, Lauren and I, it's date night for us. I don't know how you roll. That's date night for us. That's let's fill our souls with hope yet again. So we're going to eat some sushi, and we're going to be sitting right there. Y'all, come on. All right? So Friday night, 6.30 to 8.30, I think it's going to be incredible. You feel your little hope tank getting thin. You feel like you're on fumes. Just come hear the stories of the power of the gospel to transform regardless, period, right? Now, that's what we're doing. That's why that's there on Friday night, to fill you up with hope. And, and now let's dive into this book of hope, right? First Peter. So for the last three weeks, here's what we've looked at. We've looked at the question, how are you and I to live in a world that's hostile to our Christian faith? It's not, how do you live when you're blatantly persecuted or murdered or thrown in prison? We're not there yet. Don't use that word. We are not persecuted yet, but we are a nuisance, right? We are a nuisance. We can kind of feel that. Like, like the, the predominant culture kind of sees us as a hurdle to get to the utopia that they have in view, our sexual ethic, our belief about marriage, our way of handling it, right? It's all just like, gosh, if you guys would just get over your archaic, backwards, historically abusive, trauma-causing nonsense, we could get to the utopia uh, of where we're trying to go, right? That, so you and I are a bit of an obstacle right now. And so uh, how are we to live? Well, Peter has already argued, the word of God has already argued, you live lives of beauty. God's moral law matters. We pursue goodness. We live lives of beauty. We let the word of God conform our lives into something that will be beautiful to those who will be saved and will be indicting and rage causing for those who will not. Tracking with me? And then on top of lives of moral beauty, we're going to pursue goodness. We're going to submit to the moral law of God to reveal his wisdom, beauty, and glory. On top of that, we're to live lives of boldness. But that boldness looks differently than most of us think it might. And what Peter has argued is our boldness is seen in our submission as a witness. And so what kind of citizens are we to be? the best possible citizens imaginable until we can't be. What kind of workers are we meant to be at work? The best possible workers we can be. What kind of husband or wife are we meant to be if we're in a relationship where our significant other doesn't love Jesus? The best spouse we can be until we can't. Tracking with me? This is where we've been. And then he's coming out of that and into one of the overarching banners of the book. And so here's my, my outline. It's really simple, and yet there's a lot in it. Suffering is normal, and Jesus is good. You got me? 
Suffering is normal. Jesus is good. Let's look at it. The suffering is normal part is easier than the Jesus is good in that this text is, there's a lot. Noah and spirits and baptism. 13, stop. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, here's what's crazy. 15 years from when this is written, the answer would be Nero. But we did Revelation last year. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, Those who will revile you. Notice he didn't say if you are slandered, but when. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So so this passage and really uh, the whole book of 1 Peter is really framed around this reality. Suffering is normal. You, you tracking with me? Now, the, the reason why, now I, I don't have in view, and the passage doesn't have in view, uh, abuse or neglect. That's not normal, right? Abuse and neglect aren't normal, but suffering is the default human experience, not happiness, right? In fact, it is a brand new idea in the history of humanity that the default setting of your life is happiness, That's absurd, and it's led to all sorts of issues. Your most consistent experience, Selah, welcome to church, is not giddy, dumb happiness, but it's disappointment. It's frustration. It's I wish this would be different. I wish my life was this. I wish that wouldn't have happened. Man, that hurt. Gosh, I'm not going to let that happen again. Let me armor up so that I don't ever get hurt like that again. That's normal. And I'm telling you, it's only been in the last 150 years where the pervasive lie and the loop of everybody's kind of uh, highlight reel has tried to seduce us into thinking the normal default experience of being human is to be perpetually happy. Gosh, what? Says who? And who's getting mad life? Data says not the rich and powerful. Uh, Data says uh, not those who have enough to eat, drink, and a good place to sleep. Like, who's got that life? Let me answer the question for you. No one. The Bible is clear that you and I live in a broken and fallen world. The cosmos is fractured. You and I can expect disappointment, difficulty, pain, loss, frustration, questions of like, what is going on? That's the normal human experience. In fact, it's so normal that the data behind it is causing all sorts of secular people to write books about how harmful it is to believe that you're supposed to be happy all the time. Let me give you some titles that I, and I'll I'll talk a little bit. Uh, The first one's the classic, Amusing Ourselves to Death. That's a book title. It's an awesome book title. (laughs) And just dying, soul shriveling anxiety written, full of depression, but let's make sure the light's right, put that filter on. Ha! It's absurd. Amusing ourselves today, watching TV where our soul burns, busying ourselves with trivialities while our soul is famished. It's a great book. You're like, sounds like it. 
How about this one? The happiness trap. I love the title. It's a trap, right? Number three, anti-fragile. If you're a parent, I would get that book. Number four, and a book I would commend to you, if you ever looked at the world right now and you've gone, we've lost our mind. The answer is we have, and the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, solves the, it'll help you understand the why, the why behind it. And then lastly, this is a, a newer book, uh, but, but I've loved it. All this is just sociological, sociological data that's been gathered, and the secular world's going, we're killing ourselves. Lastly is a book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Love it, recommend it. I would just put a pile, you've already got a pile uh, of half-read books, push those to the side, accept your Bible, and then buy these. Just work through it slowly. You're not in a race. You're not competing. Slowly read. Some are dense. Some are fairly easy. But, but I would go, I'd start with the coddling of the American mind. It'll help you understand, oh, this is what's gone wrong, right? And, and so I said this a couple of weeks ago, that there are nine root causes of depression and anxiety, right? You, you will hear over and over and over again that that is the root cause of our day. You go millennials and down and they're being ravaged by it. Nine root causes of depression and anxiety. Two are biological. Everything else self-induced. Isn't that crazy to think about? So, so seven of the nine are us as humans giving ourselves over to depression and anxiety. It's not that uh, our chemicals are off. It's not that there's been some big T trauma back there. We have just chosen to live our lives in a kind of way that causes us to be depressed and anxious. And one of those, specifically in Johan's data, one of those is that we lack fortitude, that we have been lied to, that we have been told you're meant to be happy, you're a winner, you're the prettiest, you're the most successful. And in a, I'm a latchkey kid, all right, Gen X latchkey kid. Anybody else in here? Uh, that means your folks worked and you're like, they just gave you a key and said, figure it out. We'll be home at 5.30, right? But, but I think Gen X responded to that with like, oh man, we can't do that. So just, and like everybody wins and everybody, it's a terrible way to raise children. You and I, look at me, are not candles easily snuffed out by the wind. We're more like bonfires where the wind hits it and it increases heat and it increases the size of the flame and it makes it burn hotter. And so if you treat your life and you treat your children like they're candles, you will rob them of the fortitude they need to stand with hope-filled zeal for the things of God as they get into life. So I, again, I'm not dogging, I'm just, I, I participated in this. Um, Reed was on a flag football team for neighborhood sports years ago. Terrible team, I mean, terrible. Just, I love you, it's not your fault. You were great. I mean, didn't win a game. Not only did we not win a game, but in most games, it was like by halftime, they didn't make us play defense anymore. It's like, just play offense. So at the end of that season, never close, right? Basically run ruled the whole year. Um, they gather all, all the kids off to the side. We lived within walking distance and they're like handing MVP trophy out and, and talking about like, great job boys. And they're handing trophies out and, and we're walking home and, and Reed's like, what was this for? <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, I'm glad you brought that up. I was not going to bring that up, <laughs> but now that you have brought that up, let's have this conversation. Son, that trophy is for nothing. You guys, 
lost terribly. And so when we get home, we can put that up with your other trophies or we can just throw it in the trash. I'm gonna let you choose, but there's no reason. Y'all shouldn't even get pizza. Like that, that was awful. That was awful. Now, I'm, I'm kind of making light of something, but what service do we do to our children when we coddle their disappointments? I'm not talking about comforting. Please comfort them. Life is brutal. Your mom and dad, you're meant to comfort them. But if you save them and treat them like candles, you are setting them up. Like, gosh, you know. You remember what it's like when you graduated from college. and hey, You remember what it was like when you had your first job. You remember, like life's full of disappointments. And if all we're perpetually doing is saving them from disappointments, you're treating them like a candle. And so later on when they fold easy, you're like, gosh, I wish they had some fortitude. Guys, that's on us to teach them fortitude, to let them own some of the pain that comes from dumb mistakes, to not constantly rescue. And so maybe you're one that has been rescued. Listen, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want any shame today, but I'm telling you, you're stronger than you believe you, believe you are. You, you are not, dadgummit, a candle easily extinguished in the wind. It's not what you are. Like you're a bonfire. The wind makes you stronger. It makes you burn hotter. It makes you brighter. So don't always shield yourself from the wind. Your growth or, or your growth as a person, it, it happens not in comfort, but at the edge of your growth. You tracking with it? Where it feels stressful and painful, and that's when you're growing as a, a person. And so Peter here is saying, hey, look, suffering is normal. But, but then what he does is he takes it a, a layer down. Not only is suffering normal for all human beings, because that's it. Listen, you're not a Christian in here. That's true about you. You're a Christian in here. That's true about you. Right, that like suffering, disappointment, uh, frustration, that's not reserved for people who don't love Jesus. It's the human experience for all of us, which is why I keep trying to tell you, if you heard some nonsensical gospel that says if you give your life to Jesus, you won't suffer, you should reject that, because it's not true. Not true. Anybody love Jesus deeply and went through some dark darkness? Like dark, dark. Not dark, darkity dark. Right, yeah, good. Let's pretend we're not Baptists. Put your hand back up. Like, look at this. Look at all these people that love Jesus and been through it, right? Okay, you can put your hands down. Get a little too charismatic for me there right now. What, what he's gonna do now is saying, yeah, yeah, Christians experience that. And then there's a whole nother level that the Christian gets to experience. That's his argument in this passage. So for the Christian, there will be normal suffering that is experienced by all people everywhere in varying degrees. But the Christian will have the added suffering of being aliens and strangers in the days in which they live. So this is our passage for next week. It's bigger than these two verses, but I won't have time next week to dive deeply into these two verses. So I'm gonna go ahead and lay it before you and show you why the Christian who chooses to live righteously will in the end have a whole nother level of suffering that happens. This is 1 Peter 4, three through four. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Listen to four. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Do you see what happens? Where what Christians say is good and what society says is good, where that overlaps, Christianity will be seen and celebrated as good. Where 
Christians say this is good and society says this is good and we refuse to participate in what society says is good and he's got a list there. They will look at our refusal to participate as an indictment against them. They will feel judged and they will lash about at our seriousness about righteousness. Sometimes when people go, y'all are so judgy, nobody's judged them. They've just seen your life, your gentle spirit, your willingness to conform to the beauty of God's moral law and just that you are what you are causes guilt and shame. Now, some of you have been jerks. I'm not talking about that. Like if you're like, I don't know why you like, no, I'm not talking to you, right? You're a part of the problem. But sometimes righteousness, especially as culture says, this is good. And the farther they get away from us saying, this is good. And, and we're like, no, 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 it's not good. It's evil. And then we refuse to, like, you don't even have to speak. You just have to refuse to participate. Then you're seen as a problem. And, and so Peter is saying, you're Christian. If you live righteously, you will have normal suffering, but there'll be another layer. There'll be another layer. And he's saying, it's worth it. So the Christian becomes salt and light, not just by heralding with his mouth, although that's a big part of it. The Christian becomes salt and light by their very life. Remember the things that we've covered, that we, are, we can win without a word. We, we can uh, live a life of goodness and beauty in such a way that draws men and women unto himself. The Christian life, according to the Bible, is the aroma of life to some and the stench of death to others. We don't control that. We, we just control our gladness in submitting to King Jesus and his word. You with me? You tracking with me? So, so suffering is normal. But I will say, and I, and I would just argue this, uh, I mean, I think I'd argue with any of you about this. It is only Christianity that handles suffering honestly. No other religion does, and the secular world certainly doesn't. Let me, let me give you this quote from Tim Keller, who's like a Christian Jedi if there was such a thing, right? <laughs> Here's what he says. Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, that suffering is meaningful, that there is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. You imagine writing a sentence like that? Dad, gum it. Right? It's like, makes me want to quit. Right? He's saying, hey, this is true. Like, uh, Christianity doesn't pretend that suffering's not real. It, it doesn't pretend that it's fair. It, it doesn't pretend that, that it's not really there. It doesn't do that. Nor does it pretend that it doesn't have meaning. Christianity says God's at work in the mess. And that God strengthens and refines and calls into himself and grants life with and empowers through, not the good times, but through the difficult that exposes our idols, shows us his weak, and makes us desperate for his presence. We good? Suffering is normal. Listen, I know for some of you, I'm just, don't care. I know for some of you, th this isn't theoretical. This isn't, oh, that, that, like some of you, that, that you're in this, man. In, in week one of our series, when I highlighted that this was one of the great themes of the book of 1 Peter, like stewarding your suffering, I just stopped, just felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to stop and say, how many of you are barely hanging in there? I had a couple of people that morning where I said, how are you doing? And they were honest. Can you imagine that? Honest at church? How crazy is that? How are you doing? Terrible. 
It's such a better answer than great blessings and honor. It's, I'm struggling. I'm not sure I can make it much longer. And so I just said, oh my gosh, how many of you would just say, I don't know how much longer I can hang in there. I'm in a tough spot. And in each service, like 30, 40 people raised their hands and said, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And, and so maybe that's where you find yourself even today. And I just want you to know that suffering is normal, that what you're experiencing, and I don't know all the details, but by and large are what human beings have experienced across human history. And what we see in this passage is not just that suffering is normal, but that Jesus is good. And that takes us to a passage where there's a lot going on. So let's dive in. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now here's where it gets strange. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Three arguments about the goodness of Jesus in this strange and beautiful passage. Here's the first one. The the first reason I can say Jesus is good despite the fact that suffering is normal is that you see in the very first verse here that in verse 18 that that Jesus' pathway of suffering is the path to glory. It's not a life of ease and comfort that's the path to glory. We see in the suffering of Jesus Christ that once and for all, he broke the back of sin. Like, like that's, did you see the, the passage? Like you're in view in this passage. That in the coming of Jesus Christ, the only righteous one, the only perfect one, the, the only one not bent by iniquity, the only one who had perfect righteousness. He goes to the cross and on the cross, he absorbs God's wrath. This is the passage. He absorbs God's wrath towards your sin and mine and anyone else who would ever believe upon the name of Jesus. And then he hands to you his righteousness so that when God sees you, when the just judge of the universe sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, which is why he delights in you and rejoices in you and celebrates you if you have put your faith in his saving work. He hasn't come with new law. He hasn't come with a new set of rules. John 3, 17 says he's come, not that you'd be condemned, but you'd be saved from condemnation. This is suffering is normal, but Jesus is good. He, he has saved us from sin and death. He has, I don't know how you think about it. I don't know where I'd be if he didn't get me. I know it's in my bloodline. I know what happens to us if God doesn't intervene. When I look at my wife, my kids, my relationship with you, the friendships I have, the healing that's happened. Listen, like King David, he lifted me out of the muck and the mire and he set my feet on a rock. He's good. And I've had brain cancer and a difficult marriage and all sorts of other issues and he's good. He's just good for nothing else, but he saved me, rescued me, opened my eyes. You can celebrate that. But for time's sake, not long. Second, 
The second thing, and here's where we get into these weird verses in 1920. All I'm going to, I don't have to, so I'm going to just lay out a thread for you, and I'm going to encourage you to go study it. Pull that thread and run. It's fascinating, and this is proof that theology is awesome. Doctrine's awesome, right? So now in verses 19 and 20, what you're seeing, let me tell you what you're seeing, and let me show you how you're seeing it. What he's showing us in verses 19 and 20 with this whole Nora, uh, Noah, sorry, I have a daughter, Noah narrative, that happens a lot, actually. Noah, put that down. What? Um, <laughs> What he's saying in this is in this little area, he's hearkening back to when sin had ravaged the earth and yet God still saved. So this is a reference back and you just got to follow him and giving you a thread. It's going to hit some of you weird. It's fine. It's the Bible. It's fun. He's hearkening back to uh, Genesis uh, six and in Genesis six, okay, just follow him. Tell him stuff's weird and awesome. In Genesis 6, the Bible tells us, right before the flood, you know that chipper little children story? Right before the flood, that fallen angels looked at the women of the earth and found them beautiful and cohabitated with them and produced offspring. There, there are some schools of thought that would say the giants that were in the land were the offspring uh, of this perverse relationship between the, the beautiful daughters of man and these fallen angels. Well, what I know from Jude 6 is this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Did you hear? That those angels, they pushed past their boundary and the Lord has put them in a prison until the great and glorious day, which isn't the end of all things. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, let, let me tell you why this makes more sense than, than some of the other little ideas that have been thrown out there. Here would be the first one. The Greek word for spirits here, like little s spirits, in the New Testament always speaks to angels, never speaks to the souls of men or women. So, so that little Greek word, and here's why theology matters and why you, you, there's great websites that help you navigate stuff like this, but that word is never used for the souls of men and women, always used for angels. So these spirits that he goes to are in prison, and that word prison has never been applied to something that it, man and woman faces after death, but is used in Revelation 18 to speak of Satan being imprisoned. This is Jesus's victory over powers and principalities where Jesus shows up in that prison and says, what's up now? Right? Where you at your best tried to destroy the world. Victory is ours. That refrain, where oh death is your victory, where oh death is your sting. Why is Jesus good? Because he has victory over Satan and principalities and powers. So not only are we saved, but our great enemy has been leashed. So suffering is normal. But Jesus is good. Like, man, I want a savior who flex up on the enemy. Like, again, some of you got to get out of your mind, little six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. That ain't, that ain't it anymore. Like now it's like tattoo on the thigh, sword coming out the mouth, blood drenched robe who showed up to the spirits who were put in spiritual prison and said, you lost. Now let me get back up to the side of my father's throne and rule and reign. Because the last passage, what it says, it's all been put under his feet. Last thing. Suffering is normal and Jesus is good. He saved us by his grace through faith. He has defeated Satan and darkness. And then here's, 
Here's the last one. Jesus is good because he'll get us home. He'll get us home. So now I'm looking at verses 20 and 22 there. Um, what, what's happening? Again, all this is referenced back to Genesis 6 and 7 and the flood and all that happened before and after. And so what he's saying here in this moment is that while the ark was being built, the call to repentance went out and sin was so pervasive and it was so twisted that no one in the world repented. And that eight people went into the ark and were saved. Although we are a small percentage of the world, Christ will see us home. Christ will get us home. He, he will help us through storms and valleys. Even if you remember the 23rd Psalm, that you uh, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not that you skip the valley of the shadow of death. It's that he's with you and his rod and staff will comfort you. He will see us home. Now let me very quickly um, deal with this passage on baptism. Again, I wish I had more time, but again, I'm just trying to provide you threads. So many of you have gone through the training program. You've got uh, the, the theological chops to do a deep dive on these things. Um, Peter, when he says baptism will save you, it seems almost immediately knows that that might be misconstrued and added to the cross of Christ as something extra that you have to do besides just trust by faith alone through grace alone, right? And so he clarifies the statement in the next line where he talks about baptism, not washing you from physical dirt, but giving you a clear conscience before the, the living God. And so I would give you as a general rule of doing work in the Bible, that anything that you add to the cross and resurrection as a means of salvation has to be rejected. It has to be rejected because the majority of the scripture says that. So how do you interpret the Bible? Well, scripture interprets scripture. Right, so what does the rest of the book say uh, about whether or not baptism saves you? Well, baptism doesn't save you. Christ saves you, faith in his grace alone. And then obedience of taking our body and with our whole body saying, my trust is in you. Like Noah in the ark, you seeing him through, I'm putting my life in you. Christ, you are the ark. I am Noah. And I know you will get me onto the top of that mountain after the flood recedes. You will get me home. Listen to this quote by James Dunn, who's a, a, a New Testament scholar who I like. Baptism is a symbolic expression of the heart's appeal to God. Baptism is a calling on God. It's a way of saying to God with our whole body, I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark and to make Jesus the substitute for my sin and to bring me through these waters of death and judgment into the new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus, my Lord. It's not that baptism doesn't matter. It matters huge. In fact, I'd go so far to say if you've been saved and haven't been baptized, that's disobedience and a weird way to kick off your relationship with Christ. I mean, that's a weird first day. Hey, I'm, I'm all in. Hey, here's my, uh, here's, I, I want to marry. I'm all in. I'm just going to live with this person for a little bit longer if that's cool. It's a bad first date, guys. Baptism is about obedience and about publicly saying with my whole self, I'm putting myself into Christ. Now, how then, if suffering is normal and Jesus is good, 
then how are we meant to live in this time? And I would argue the time that looks like it's coming. A couple of things. Uh, I think the short answer, and then I'm going to roll some of this into next week, is with biblically literate, hope-filled faith. Biblically literate, hope-filled faith. Let, let me give you one, two, two short examples. And, and then uh, I want to just pray and just commend you to leave this place um, and live boldly um, the moral beauty of God in this moment. Um, one of the other leading causes of depression and anxiety, and, and one of the things that the Bible is going to hearken you out of over and over again, is getting stuck in a moment and navel-gazing. Right? And, and so how do we live with hope-fueled faith? Well, man, we got to get our eyes up and play the long game. You, you tracking with me? How are we pulled forward into faithful living despite pressure from a, a world and a culture that's going a completely different direction of us and it's going to get more and more weary of us in the future? Well, we lift up our eyes. We gaze upon Christ ascended and on his throne. Our hope that all things will be made new and that Christ is victorious pulls us forward in a way that if we get stuck in a moment and if we can't get our eyes up, we'll surely be crushed. A couple of examples. I have, I have tried to always be honest about the first seven years of my marriage. My wife's in here. You don't have to panic. They were awful. Maybe you think you shouldn't say that. Trust me, I should. Because some of you have awful marriages and you think that's abnormal. It was brutal. Seven years. Think about it. Seven years of me laying in bed and going, is this the rest of my life? And at some point, you got to hear Lauren's side of the story because she's not going to grab the mic and go, oh, my childhood, oh, my girlhood dreams came true in this man. It was bad. And if I'm honest, I felt stuck, hopelessly stuck. And yet we had made a covenant with God, each other, and our friends and family. And we held to that covenant and looked to the future that God could heal, that God could make a way, that God could fix this. And by his grace, he did. And so what you see in the playful fun that Lauren and I live in now, it, it, that's having a picture of the future that pulls you out of the present. Another example I would give you is when uh, I was diagnosed with brain cancer and they're, you know, they're like, hey, good news, you got two to three years. Which isn't great news when you're in your late 30s. And, and it just, it felt like loss. Like everything felt like a loss. Gosh, I, I remember like seeing Audrey run around the house. I just couldn't do it, man. I mean, I just literally couldn't do it. So I'd just hide in the bedroom, listen to worship music and try to find a way. And then, um, and yet the Lord in his kindness, not in the fun, not in the, hey, this is really awesome. I love these lessons I'm learning. No, in, in what felt like unsurvivable loss, the, the Lord, like, just tell me, get my eyes up, man. Just get you, come here, look at me. You're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. I love them more than you. Gosh, I, I love, listen, before the foundation of the earth was laid, I, I put my eyes on them. And, and, and so pulling me out of the present and the navel gazing and the feeling sorry for myself, even though it stunk, and gazing upon, hey, my future is secure. 
like rooted me in a kind of hope that, that put steel in my spine and made me feel invincible even as they poisoned and radiated me. And you've got your stories. Like, like watch this. I always want to encourage you. And then I've got to pray for us. Uh, how many of you were stuck in a season that was so dark you felt like you would never get out of it, but you have now got out of it and, and you can see that even in the middle of something you never want to do again or experience again, you can see the handiwork of God producing deep and beautiful things in your life. How many of you just go, dang it, I've been there. Okay, so if you're there, no, keep your, don't baptize me, get it up. Now, if you're in that season right now, look around. Goodness sakes, look at us. Look at me. He will get you home. He's good, but you've got to have a hope that's bigger than happiness right now. It's a real sad dream for your life. Just want to be happy all the time. Don't buy into it. Don't buy into the highlight reels. Don't buy into the life is hard. Suffering is normal. Jesus is good. Let's pray. Father, I bless these men and women. I pray specifically for those. They're just in it right now, man. They're just in it. And they just basically crawled into this place today. Will you meet them? Like in that deeper place, would you meet them? Would you encourage them? Would you begin to uh, lift up their eyes yet again? Will you remind them of your faithfulness and goodness? Will you give them yet again the faith to believe that you see them, that you haven't forgotten them, and that although evil might meant to destroy them with this, you will flip it on its head. And so we praise you that evil and suffering are not omnipotent, you are. So we bless you, help us. It's for your beautiful name I pray, amen.